Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, one and all. You know, as I prepared for this talk, my overriding desire, my overriding prayer is that regardless of circumstances today, and there will be lots of different circumstances in this room today, that you would know the joy, the great joy of this day, the joy of Easter Sunday, where we get to say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And so, unsurprisingly, we're going to be reading about the resurrection today. The book of John, 21 to 18. So it will be on the screen behind me, but if you have a, a phone or a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to follow as we read. But before we do that, let me just give you some context. Let's make sure we're all in the right place. So Jesus has been crucified on Friday, Good Friday. He's dead. The gospel account tells us that a Roman soldier pierced his side and immediately blood and water flowed out. And the medics among us will know that this is what happens. The heavier blood cells and the the water plasma cells separate on death. The temple curtain, all 10 centimeters thick of it, has torn in two. Jesus' body is being put in a tomb with a massive stone, weighing at least a ton in front of it. And the disciples, well, where are they? They're in hiding. They're scared. They're wondering what happens next. They are full of fear and hopelessness. So into that, we're going to read John 20, 1 to 18, which says this. It says, early on the first day of the week. If the slides just catch up. Thanks, Rob. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, 
I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. You know, there are certain words in the English language that, that I really love, that just resonate, that convey so much more than just the mere meaning of the words. I wonder if there are any words like that that come to your mind. For me, one of them is the word home. The thought of going home after a a long time away perhaps, driving back home, all what that entails, comfort, familiarity, some people who quite like me, my old brown leather chair, a guitar. But hope, hope is another one of those words. I remember a youngster, being a youngster, watching Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, A New Hope. To being a teenager with a Shawshank Redemption poster in my room which said, fear can hold you a prisoner, hope can set you free. Going to the words of Hebrews 6 as a new Christian, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Hope, hope is a wonderful word. Do you agree? And today of all days, I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about the certainty of hope. And as followers of the risen Jesus, that is what? We have, and very simply, brothers and sisters, this morning, I want to remind you of this, that we have a certainty of hope. You know, I don't know about you, though, but before I knew this risen Jesus, this Jesus that Andrew's talked about, that we've sang about, before I gave my life to him, I, had, I did have hope. I had hope, but I can only describe it as a restless hope. There was a, a restlessness to my, to my very being, and it was strange, really, because it felt like I had all that I should have and, and could have that was kind of expected of me. Do you know what I mean? I, I was at a decent university. I came to Leeds for university. Now, I had somehow managed to get a girlfriend. I played sport, and I was quite good at it. I had loving, generous, supportive parents. I was even in a band. But I was restless. I was restless. And do you know what? To be quite honest with you, I was actually thoroughly dissatisfied and sometimes really quite low. And I think a big part of it was that I'd started to gently believe in what we might call or I might call a Disney hope. You know, Disney, I think, is an interesting cultural barometer. Moana, Elsa, Mirabelle. <laughs> They've all got something quite similar to say if you watch those films. You know, the, this is a cultural narrative that's fixated on identity, being our own saviors. It's about our effort. If we try hard enough, we can, we can do anything. We find out who we were meant to be, born to be, and then what happens? We live happily ever after, don't we? And we're bombarded with this stuff. We're bombarded with this stuff from news articles, magazines, social media, individuality and self-realization, self-actualization, it's the narrative of our times. The obvious problem is that Disney doesn't really reflect the realities of life, does it? The reality of the human condition, the human experience. We don't often live 
happily ever after, not in this life anyway. I really don't think there are many Ukrainians who would appreciate the Disney sentiment right now or can relate to it. But what we hope for is important, isn't it? It's really important. And all of us have some kind of foundation of hope, for hope, and foundations are crucial. They are really crucial, because that's what we build our very lives upon. You know, I came to realize that my restlessness was due to shifting, unstable foundations. And they shifted often. They were destabilized, depending on my circumstances. I came to realize that my foundational hope was actually pretty shallow and was ultimately subjective. And it led to restlessness. It led to a lot of questioning. And it led to hopelessness. Now, St. Augustine, one of my favorite philosophers and theologians, he lived around about 1,700 years ago. And he spent his, ter- uh, his teenage and, and his early adult life indulging in some really rather hedonistic pursuits. But he would feel this restlessness, this hopelessness. He would feel it acutely, this lack of a solid foundation. And when he finally relented and gave his life to Jesus, I just want to remind you that Jesus would describe himself and his teachings as a rock. That's a firm foundation, isn't it? St. Augustine would say, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And so today, I want to draw out four hopes. Four hopes that relate to Easter Sunday and the passage we've just read. Four hopes that mean our faith can be certain, it can be stable, it's unshifting. And so hope number one, we have a rational hope. We have a rational hope. Do you know, I could not be a Christian. I just couldn't be a Christian if I didn't believe that Christianity was rational, was reasonable, and reliable. And this passage gives us some really strong evidence for the rational hope that we can have in this day, in the resurrection, in the events of Easter Sunday. So, exhibit one. The text tells us from verse six that Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Good old Peter. Straight into the tomb. We're not surprised, are we? I wonder what he's thinking, though. I suspect he's thinking a few things. Why are the clothes still here? But more importantly, where's the body? That question's been asked many times by many people. And the lack of body, the empty tomb, is a rational argument for the resurrection. Where's the body? If this is a hoax, if the disciples had made all this up, Then if there was a body, the Jewish and the Roman authorities, they would have found it. They would have displayed it. They were desperate, remember, to suppress this movement. And they would have taken logical steps to do so. But they didn't. Why? Because there was no body. Because Jesus was alive. Movements don't tend to do very well if the founder is dead before it even gets going. Exhibit two. In the passage, we read the testimony of Mary Magdalene. I'm sorry to say it, but in most ancient um, societies, women were marginalized. 
And importantly, their testimony was deemed unreliable. They were never called upon to give evidence in a court of law because their testimony was considered not to be trusted. So the fact that the gospel writers have included Mary and actually other women as being the first to see Jesus is just remarkable. It's incredible. If the gospel writers like John were making up these stories to get the movement off the ground, they would have never have written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Why? Because they weren't credible witnesses at that time. I think this leads us to one eventuality, which is that the presence of Mary was accurate, that the writers were faithfully and reliably recording what was seen. Exhibit three. Before the resurrection, the disciples, as I've already said, they were crippled by fear. Before our passage, we read that they're hiding away, that they're hopeless. And we've got to ask the question, what happens next? Where does the story go? The story that you and I are still part of. Do you know what happens? Overnight, overnight their worldview changes. We see the explosive growth of the church. We see denying disciples speaking boldly, enabled by the Holy Spirit. What are they preaching? They are preaching Christ resurrected. Most of them would go on to die for their faith. So my question is, if it wasn't the resurrection that caused this, then what? What was it? Why did these fearful men suddenly do the biggest U-turn ever seen in human history? Why? It's because they saw the risen Jesus. They ate with him. They spoke with him. They were commissioned by him. You wouldn't do that for a dead man, but you would for a risen saviour. You know, there are so many pieces of evidence for the truth of Jesus and for the resurrection. Let me really encourage you today to go and investigate this for yourself. If there's people out there, you guys out there, thinking, oh, I didn't know any of this stuff, go and have a look. There's so much more. We have a rational hope, and we can take great joy from that on this day. We have a rational hope. We also have an eternal hope. Number two, an eternal hope. You know, as a culture, we don't talk much about death, do we? Our culture tends to focus on squeezing as much out of this life as we possibly can, thinking that this is all there is. We don't really want to talk about death. But despite it feeling like the contrary at times, I think fear of death leads us to a a reluctance to talk about it, death is on the mind of people. It is on the mind of people. A survey, a a widespread survey in 2015 found that nearly 50% of adults in the UK thought about death at least once a month. Over 20% thought about it weekly. This is 2015. I wonder in the light of the last three years whether that number's gone up quite a lot. I suspect it probably has. Just a week ago, Mez and I received a message that a lady called Sheila, who did the NCT course with us uh, nearly 10 years ago, had, had died of lung cancer. She left behind two young boys and a husband. And in and amongst this, the shock and surprise of this, there was also this sense that we've seen this before. That as sad as this is, these things do happen. Because death comes to us all. 
whether we have time to prepare for it or not, we're all going to die. Jesus viewed death as an enemy. That's good, isn't it? We see his raw emotion relating to death at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. We see him weep at the reality of it. And we weep, don't we? And, and, and rightly so. We shouldn't suppress our emotions. When my mother died, I cried like a baby. But the wonderful news is that death has been overcome. Like Jesus, we too will have resurrected bodies. You know, this was something that Paul in the New Testament wanted to make really clear when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in him. And so what does this mean? It means that there's a vision of life and existence beyond this one. We should not think that Christianity merely sorts out our problems in our life here. Rather, the ultimate goal is actually beyond this life. When we get older and, and even more hair falls out, we go grey. I've started to go grey already. Things like arthritis kick in. We get tired more easily. And it's not just children, you're just getting old. <laughs> well, that's the reality. <laughs> or, or we slip into something considerably more sinister, like dementia or serious illness. Do you know, suddenly our resurrection existence begins to look very good indeed. You know, I don't think we're going to be that interested in surviving and keeping on going forever. In fact, most elderly Christians I have known have been ready to go home. That's to go to heaven sometime before they were taken. My own mother had ovarian cancer, which spread to the peritoneum, which is uh, essentially the abdominal cavity. And we saw her go from being a normal weight, literally to skin and bones. And in the course of three weeks, she went from making us a final Christmas lunch to slipping away into eternal life. And I remember asking her if she was ready for heaven. That's probably the hardest question I've ever asked. But the answer was a resounding yes. And there was a hope. There was hope in her fading eyes. That she knew she was soon to have a new resurrected body. Just like her King Jesus. Most of you will have heard of the, uh, read the Narnia books. C.S. Lewis the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the last book is called The Last Battle. Again, if you haven't read it, let me encourage you to do so. If you haven't read it for years and years, go back and read it. And Aslan is speaking about the end of earthly life. And C.S. Lewis then writes, but for them, it was the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Do you know what Easter Sunday means? Easter Sunday means that the grave is no longer a place of despair, but it's a bed of hope. Easter Sunday means the grave is no longer a place of despair, but it's a bed of hope. In the passage, both 
The angels and Jesus ask Mary the same question, don't they? Why are you crying? Why are you crying? And when something's repeated in the Bible, it, it's drawing our particular attention to it. It's important. And I think they're making the point that, that like us, our tears need only be temporary. Mary stood before a resurrected saviour, just as we do. A resurrected saviour conquered death and enables us to do the same. Jesus was to know this. Jesus said in John 16, 20, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. So let me tell you this Easter Sunday. If you are a Christian, you have an eternal hope. You have something quite wonderful to look forward to. So we have a rational hope. We have an eternal hope. Thirdly, we have a saving hope. We have a hope full of grace. And it is grace that saves, not how good we are. You know, there are two interactions that Jesus had just before his death and then after his resurrection. And they reveal so much and I find them profoundly moving. I don't know about you. And I think they tell us exactly what Easter means. It means that we have a saving hope. And these two interactions are with the thief who died alongside Jesus and they're with Mary. We've, we've just read about her, haven't we? The thief. The thief is being crucified alongside Jesus. And you know what that thief does? That thief assesses his heart and he knows he's fallen short. In his last breath, what does he do? He asks for forgiveness. He asks to be remembered. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that's a saving hope, isn't it? That's a saving grace. That's a timeless answer to a timeless problem. It's all been done for us. You know, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. This is about do versus done. This is do versus done. I think every other belief system on earth can be boiled down to the word do. Do this. Just do that. Just be good enough. Tick it off the list. A tickless manual for living life. Whether it's the Noble Eightfold Path in Buddhism or it's the angel on each shoulder in Islam. Jesus adds two letters. He adds an N and an E. And it spells done. Because we can never be good enough. Jesus ensured that it was done for us. His last breath, forgive me, Jesus. I don't imagine that thief had lived a very good life to you. And yet, today, you'll be with me in paradise. What a saving hope that is. And then Mary. Mary's the first to see the risen Jesus. Let's just remind ourselves who Mary is. Mary a woman. Jesus chooses a woman, a reformed woman who was literally demonized. Jesus took seven demons out of her. She was a social outcast. She was homeless. And what does Jesus say to her? Jesus says, Mary, you're my first messenger. What a beautiful scene. It's a, a beautiful scene of grace and love. You know, I think we can safely say that Mary is quite surprised, isn't she? She had come to anoint a dead Jesus. She'd come to anoint a dead Jesus, even though she'd heard him say, just like the other disciples, that he would die and raise, uh, rise again, sorry. Jesus has said that repeatedly. And when she does encounter the risen Jesus, when she realizes that it's Jesus and not the gardener, she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. I find it interesting that she calls him teacher. 
I think she still hasn't quite understood who Jesus is. And I just wonder where you are at with Jesus today. Are we a bit like Mary this Easter Sunday? Has Jesus been diminished? Do we understand exactly, fully who he is? I wonder if there are some of you who just think Jesus was a good moral teacher. If so, I urge you to look deeper. Go deeper into this. Perhaps some of you here have just diminished what this all means. Easter has become just another nice extended weekend. We get to see more of our family. It's going to be good or bad, can't it? We get to eat more chocolate. Does our day become fixated around food and when we put the lamb in and how delicious it's going to be? I've already had some WhatsApp messages from some of my friends talking about the lamb. I thought it was interesting. You know, let me encourage you to tell somebody today about your journey to the risen Jesus. It might be to one of your children, a relative, a friend. Remind yourselves. Encourage each other. The Bible tells us to encourage each other a lot. Just never forget, you have the most important news that anyone is ever, ever going to hear. You have news of a saving hope. So we have a rational hope. We have an eternal hope. We have a saving hope. We have a timeless hope. We have a timeless hope. <coughs> Easter Sunday is for all time and it's for all people. You know, Jeremiah 17.9 says this. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things. It's oh, a bit harsh on Easter Sunday, isn't it, Jack? It's not very fluffy. Perhaps not, but I think, I think it's a timeless truth and reveals to us that we all need a perfect saviour because we cannot be our own saviours. Because our sin is timeless, so must the remedy be. And you know, Arthur Conan Doyle, excuse me, the creator of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. You all live Arthur Conan Doyle? He once found great amusement in a practical joke that he played on 12 of his famous friends. Each of these men were virtuous, highly respected men. And for the joke, Doyle sent every one of them the same telegram. Fly at once. All is discovered. Within 24 hours, all 12 had left the country. <laughs> What's the point of the story? The point of the story is we may think we are virtuous, that we're decent sorts, we're good eggs, but you know, all of us fall short, far short of a holy God. We've all experienced guilt. Guilt is that little clue, isn't it, to our wrongdoing. We're all prideful. There's not a person in this room who would want their innermost thoughts shared with the person next to them. You know, Tim Keller uses a powerful illustration for this, the impact of sin, our wrongdoing, our need for forgiveness, when he says this. Imagine you have an invisible recorder around your neck that for all of your life records every time you say to somebody else, you ought or you should. It only turns on when you tell somebody else how to live. In other words, it only records your own moral standards as you seek to impose them on other people. It records nothing except what you believe is right or wrong. 
And what if God on judgment day stands in front of people and says, you never heard about Jesus Christ. You never read the Bible. But I'm a fair-minded God. Let me show you what I'm going to use to judge you. Then he takes that invisible recorder from around your neck and says, I'm going to judge you by your own moral standards. And God plays the recording. There's not a person on the face of the earth who will be able to pass that test. And Keller goes on to say, I've used this illustration for years now and nobody ever wants to challenge it. Nobody ever says, I live according to my standards. And this is the biggest problem of the human race. We don't need more books telling people how to live. People need the power to do what they don't have the power to do. And this is why the risen Jesus is timeless. And the, res- the resurrection Easter Sunday, it shows, us, it shows us that God will ultimately triumph. That sin is dealt with if you believe in Jesus. That creation will not be discarded, but will ultimately be renewed and restored. That death will finally be overcome. That meaning will not forever be mocked by, by our finite nature. That evil and suffering will not forever blight our world. That our physicality is not a temporary burden, but an essential part of our glory. That injustice and oppression and disease and decay and death and sorrow and, and unkindness and brokenness, they're all finite. Whereas, whereas, life and love and beauty and glory and joy, they're all eternal. Do you know what? I love the part in the passage where Jesus simply calls Mary by name. We don't always consider tone, do we, when we read the Bible? But when I read this, all I hear is compassion and grace and intimacy. We see that Mary is found by Jesus. Do you know, I think that something else that is timeless is that all of us need and want to hear our name being called, Mary. Paul, Hule, Faye, Aidan, Emily. All of us want to matter, don't we? We all, all of us want to mean something. I think God has put this desire in our hearts. And I just want to remind you this morning that you mean so much to God that he sent his one and only son to die for you. There's nothing, there's nothing that anyone will ever do for you in this life that even comes close to this great act of love and sacrifice. Nothing. So if you're here and you think this is interesting but you're not sure, let me encourage you to question your life as it is. Because questioning is important, isn't it? I questioned for about a year before I made a commitment to Jesus. But let me just say this as I come into land. Imagine, imagine you get an email. And it's from a solicitor. And it's from, it's about a relative that you've never really heard of you've never really known, but they've, they've died and they've left you a fortune, apparently. It includes a house, it includes an inheritance. I wonder what you're gonna think, what you're gonna do. Is this a scam? But this is an email from a solicitor. It, it's well written. 
there's an official font. There's a header, there's a footing. You look up the firm, and they exist. What are you going to do? I'd say at the very least, you're going to look into it, aren't you? You're going to question it. You're going to surely explore it. I would anyway. Why? Because the offer is so great. Because there's so much to gain. That's why you're going to look into it. You know, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Christianity of false is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So a rational, an eternal, a saving, a timeless hope means we don't need to be restless. It means we have a hope we can rest in today. And that is why Easter Sunday should bring us great joy. It means that praise should never be far from our lips. It means we can say the words of Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And it means we go out and we share this great news of great joy with others. And so I do, as Andrew said, I want to invite you to think about Alpha. It starts in early June. Come and explore. Come and ask questions. Because you're not going to offend God. I would ask, who can you invite? Who can you start having conversations with in the next few days? Christianity of false is of no importance and if true of infinite importance the only thing it cannot be is moderately important so can I ask you to stand we're going to sing but before we do I'm just going to pray a blessing over us from Romans 15 13 before I hand back over to Graham and it simply says this now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.